Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, and this week, The Economist asks, what have been the highlights of the program so far this year? Well, there have been many, including when Tony Blair sat down and explained his views on Brexit. I mean, if we believe that our future lies in greater European cooperation and as a great global trading nation, how do we begin that with withdrawing from the largest global trading market on our doorstep? And then there was a time when Daniel Dennett, the philosopher and cognitive scientist, discussed whether artificially intelligent robots could become conscious. We have various visionaries who are predicting that a conscious artificial super agent, more intelligent than any human being, will soon be a possibility. And of course, as soon as it arises, then it will just take over and it will treat us as custodial uh, helpers. But first, we start with one of the biggest names in business, Bill Gates. It was over 40 years ago that he registered his small little company, a startup, Microsoft, in the state of New Mexico. In 2006, he stepped down from the behemoth that it had become to focus on his charity, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Since then, it has handed out more than $36 billion, that's right, billion dollars in grants to improve health care and reduce poverty. The trend line has been absolutely phenomenal, and most people aren't aware that we've cut childhood deaths in half, and vaccines played the major role there. Now, 86% of children receive basic inoculation. That is the highest it has ever been. In its annual newsletter, the foundation writes that 122 million children's lives have been saved since 1990. But as the economists Anne McElvoy put it to Bill Gates, the idea of evidence-based policy, including vaccination, is increasingly under attack. Well, I don't know what the alternate to evidence-based policy is. There is a discussion about how by saving lives, we create security, we create markets, we avoid pandemics. You know, there's as budgets are tight, this idea of the relative priority of things like PEPFAR, which is the U.S. stepping up with literally $5 billion a year to provide HIV medicines to save millions of lives in Africa. Because you have to take those medicines lifelong, if that money's not there, means those people will die from HIV. So, you know, there's a discussion about priorities, but it's there is no alternative to evidence-based activity, whether it's anti-poverty programs or education programs or, you know, scientific research. But some people do think that there are alternatives that are perhaps more belief-based. A couple of examples. President Trump's discussed appointing Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a proponent of somewhat disproven theories linking vaccines to autism, to chair a vaccine safety commission. So how worried are you that that kind of decision, which 
may not go forward, but if, if it did, or the kind of thinking that lies behind it will affect the progress. Well, it's very important to have people understand how carefully vaccines are examined, the safety of the individual vaccines, the appropriateness of that vaccine schedule. So if it's an opportunity for us to have people see the facts and people want to protect their children, facts sometimes get behind negative rumors. And we see that relative to vaccines in all sorts of countries. You know, maybe there's some visibility here that's a chance to really straighten out the record and and make sure that that diseases where even even if a small number of kids aren't vaccinated, like measles or pertussis, that we don't get into that situation. Sure, but if I were minded, if I were one of the people who thought that there was a link between vaccines and autism, and a substantial number of people do, and they seem to be getting perhaps more of a, a pulpit, or may get more of a pulpit as we go forward in this administration than in the last, doesn't that worry you? Well, there's an opportunity to let people know that those concerns are unfounded, that it was withdrawn, it was, you know, there never was any evidence in that direction, that there have been huge multi-country studies that have shown that connection does not exist. Anytime we can get that out there, you know, I I think that's helpful to people. And maybe there's some people who harbor that view where this will be a chance to, to straighten it out. Bill Gates there, speaking with Anne McElvoy. Next, no one is safe from caricature. Not the Queen, not Margaret Thatcher, not even Bill Gates. It's really great to be here. There's nothing like a party. You know, uh, you work hard all your life, especially trying to get Microsoft working. That's Nathan Fielder on Comedy Central. But after President Trump's election, many criticized the media for not taking the candidates seriously enough. So do actors and cartoonists still have the ability to shed light on current events? Two people who have an eye for impersonations are the award-winning cartoonist for The Economist, Cal Callagher, and the actress Hayden Gwynn, who played Margaret Thatcher in the stage production in London of The Audience. I mean, before I was cast, I was asked to do a, a reading of it when they were trying out the play. And they said, oh, you know, don't worry about impersonation. It really doesn't matter. We're just trying to get a feel for the play. But, but the truth is... You know, if you're tackling Margaret Thatcher, you cannot get away from that voice. There are many other things, but you're going to start with the voice. So I did. I thought I've got to. And I was practising in the kitchen, trying to sort of rally a bit of Margaret Thatcher into my vocal cords. And when I'd finished, my partner had been watching Telly next door, sort of opened the kitchen door and went, oh, my God, it was all I could do not to rush through the kitchen drawer and stab you with the bread knife. And... <laughs> So I thought, OK, I'm doing something right. She basically had two essential vocal modes. And the first one was was this, you know, very soft voice that when she was talking to you, I remember this interview with Sir Robin Day, where she, you know, her head is tilted to one side and um, she's being very reasonable, even though he's being awfully stupid. <laughs> her other mode was much more the one we're associated with the dispatch box, you know, where she's getting really quite worked up and saying no a lot. No, no, no. And that's, you know, you ended up using that more because that will reach the back of the stalls. I mean, I am exaggerating now, but you, you, you see that the issue was I, I, need, I sort of needed one tone, but actually was required to use the other. 
And what I tend to do is do impressions of hiding Gwyn in the kitchen, practicing all the time so that my wife does not stab me with a bread knife because we both loved Hayden Gwynn's performance of Margie Thatcher in the production of The Audience. But then, what did the audience of The Audience think? She explained to Anne McElvoy and the cartoonist Cal. There was a real frisson. Peter Morgan was sent out to make a speech at the top of the show, just sort of acknowledging the event. And But just the whole atmosphere, normally, up until that point... You know, Thatcher doesn't appear in the play till the second half, but there's a great sense of anticipation. She's the only other woman in the play, and the audience are really sort of waiting for it. And I'd I'd have this sort of long walk, and she had this slightly odd walk, which I tried to do, and and then this very deep curtsy, which if you look at the pictures, she also did these insanely deep curtsies to the Queen, which always got a sort of big sort of comic reaction. Well, on on that day, when I came on and I walked and into the curtsy and into her first line... You know, I just came onto this tumbleweed silence, and uh, and I realised the audience were absolutely petrified. They didn't know how they were allowed to react, and the feeling from the audience—it was so powerful. All of a thousand people feeling exactly the same thing that it, it, it almost—they almost infected me with their nerves. For a moment, I could have crumbled. And I sort of could see Helen and me sort of mentally take a deep breath and go, no, this is a historical moment. It's the same show. It's the same thing. And sort of grab it. And then you just do it. By the neck and do it and sort of force them to come on board with you. But it, that whole period up until the funeral, it, it was sort of like a roller coaster. The audience were a little bit hysterical. Well, we went on a road show together not so long ago. And, Cal, you undertook a rather dangerous mission that you tried to get me, having placed 28th out of 30th in my school drawing class, to draw Donald Trump. But what I thought was so interesting there was that you had these very assured strokes, but things like a mouth or the tilt of a line at the nose by a fraction can really make such a difference as to how things look. It is. It's In fact, that magic is one of the things that I find incredibly fascinating about the whole process of drawing and perception of drawing, particularly when you're doing caricatures where you're you know, really sometimes pulling your face completely far apart and it's just lines on paper, yet you will show it to all these various different people and they would recognize the person even though if you put a photograph of the same person next to those lines, they wouldn't look anything alike. And Donald Trump is probably the most easy caricaturable character that we've had on the scene for the longest time, partly because he, he's decided to um, give the cartoonists around the world the honor of his hair. <laughs> and and then he's a real estate magnet, and his, his face has got more real estate by the day. It seems to be growing and sagging in, in all sorts of directions. So you start with a, you know, a giant U that would, represents his jowls and everything that's held in it. Then you plop on the top of it almost a flat cap of blonde hair. And then um, some very pinched eyes and a short little nose and then an open oval mouth. And you've only almost got them just there. So there's some real mystery magic to this whole notion of caricature and exaggeration. Cal Callagher and Hayden Gwynn. Just over a year ago, the Brexit vote dominated the headlines in the UK. Then in March, Parliament voted in favour of the Brexit bill. And now the work is beginning as the talk turns to the terms of Britain's departure from the EU. 
Many questions remain. Will the UK stay in the single market? What will happen with Northern Ireland's border? And will the 1.2 million Brits living in EU countries be allowed to stay? Next week, round three of the negotiations begin. Both a soft Brexit or a quote-unquote hard Brexit are on the table. So which way will the needle swing? We ask the Economist political editor, John Pete to clue us in with his Brexit barometer. Factor. The economy. Well, if the economy remains robust, I think it's quite likely that people will say the scare stories about um, Brexit leading to a disaster for the economy will, will not be believed. And therefore, it's more likely that we will have a hard Brexit. If the economy starts to turn down and unemployment starts to go up, then then people may say, look, Brexit is doing damage to the economy, and that might incline them towards more towards having a soft Brexit to minimise the damage. Factor. Immigration. If the numbers of migrants coming from the world, but also, but particularly from the European Union, fall significantly over the next couple of years, then I think people's anxiety about migration might diminish. And I think that, that could lead to a softer form of Brexit. If, on the other hand, migration continues to be in the 300,000s, with about half of that coming from the European Union, then more people will say, we were right to vote for Brexit, we want to take back control over the migration ourselves. Factor. Westminster politics. It's mainly inside the Conservative Party that there will be a battle over the terms of, of Brexit between particularly the three pro-Brexit ministers led by David Davis and the Chancellor's Exchequer, Philip Hammond, who will be more worried that Brexit might damage the economy. And I think in this political battle, whoever wins that will be very decisive for the question of whether we have a hard Brexit, which is what the Brexit ministers will want, or a softer version, which is what the Chancellor will want. Factor. Public opinion. I think the biggest question of all over Brexit is whether voters during the next year or two start to think that perhaps it's a mistake or perhaps Brexit would not be quite delivering quite the things that they wanted. Many people who voted Leave believed that it was a cost-free thing to do, that Britain could leave the European Union without having any suffering any economic consequences and life would go on as before. But, of course, a referendum is just a snapshot at, at any one time, and, and this referendum was won only by 52 to 48%. So if, during the next two years, it looks as if people are beginning to have second thoughts, there is a possibility that towards the end of that period there, there may be demands for, for, a, for a rethink and possibly even a fresh referendum. At the moment, I think that's unlikely, but things can change. Verdict. I think it's too up in the air, actually, and I don't think I would know. I, I, I think this is going to be the big battle for the, for the year. Uh, I'm probably, I would, I mean, at the moment, I'm still thinking they're heading towards a hard Brexit, but I think during the next year, things could change. That's John Pete, who's looking wiser and wiser to have shied away from a clear prediction. Now, one of the things that The Economist has been covering substantially is how to apply new ideas and innovation to problems in politics and global affairs. One of the themes that has caught our eye is how network theory could be applied to governance. The information age fundamentally restructured society into networks and nodes, all intricately interlinked rather than in hierarchies with winners and losers. So instead of, quote-unquote, games of chess, of, say, North Korea versus America, or Russia versus America. We will defeat any attack and meet 
any use of conventional or nuclear weapons with an overwhelming and effective American response. We should be viewing the world as a game of perhaps snakes and ladders with up rounds and down rounds, but lots of ongoing engagements. Could this way of network thinking provide a model for 21st century politics? Anne-Marie Slaughter thinks so, and she's written a fabulous book called The Chessboard and the Web. She is the president of the think tank New America and was also the former director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department under Hillary Clinton. In the interview, I accused Anne-Marie of creating a doctrine of foreign policy for snowflakes. She laughed, but this is how Anne-Marie said she would address the global challenges facing Mr. Trump's White House. So if I were advising the Trump administration right now, let's take a, a domestic issue, I would say to the president, you have a great communications network. You're the hub and you have 26 million Twitter followers and you can broadcast things and that works fairly well for you. If you want that network to actually get anything done with respect to governance, and I'm of the other party, so I hope he he does not succeed, but nevertheless, you need to turn that star network, one center, many different people in the galaxy, into a pod network. You need to create groups of connected supporters who actually can mobilize political action. So that's that's a pretty simple concept, uh, and I think uh, he certainly could understand it. I think it is true that his State Department is strongly chessboard. I think... You have to be deliberate about saying this is a new set of strategies, the time is right, but I don't think it's going to just come upon you because it does require, as as the strategy of conflict required, uh, they deliberately applied game theory to foreign policy and we have to deliberately apply network theory. How do we train these people to actually enact what you're proposing? Is it only the tech savvy who can do it? And if so, how do we create these new leaders? Well, the tech savvy certainly have an advantage, but I actually don't think you need to be Mark Zuckerberg. I would say anyone probably under 35 finds this to be a very congenial way of thinking because they have grown up connected. Uh, And so the notion of shaping those connections is not foreign to them. It's not going to be all that different than creating their own social media networks. But the other people who have a real advantage here, I have to say, are women, that when I uh, have given in this lecture, I find women and young people nodding away. Women uh, are not biologically disposed to think in terms of networks, but sociologically, when you have not exercised power in hierarchies, you have learned how to make connections and deploy those connections strategically, as any women, certainly when I grew up in the American South, would tell you that's how they they exercised uh, power. So I, I think this comes quite naturally to lots of people, but I do hope hope that students of foreign policy, students of business, students of civic organizations will learn to think in network ways, but not throw out the chessboard. Anne-Marie Slaughter, the author of The Chessboard and the Web. Now, The Economist asks, but sometimes guests don't want to answer. And that was the case in a recent interview with Neil Shen, a Chinese investor in technology and artificial intelligence companies. The discussion was focused on how China seems to be winning the AI race. But when the economists Anne McElvoy and Tom Standage turned the talk to how this technology might be used to further monitor and suppress the Chinese, things got a little quiet. 
But in general, I think there is just more data point. But there is surely a, a danger that AI can be used as a tool of suppression a, a, and surveillance. And I'm going to stick my neck out here and say in an authoritarian country such as China, does that worry you at all? I don't think so. Why not? I mean, can you just engage with the question a, a bit? Because it is clearly, you know, to say that we collect data everywhere, but you are not prepared to talk about that? I mean, it could make the censorship of the internet much easier, couldn't it? No. I mean, is it broadly true, Mr. Chen, that you just don't want to talk about the implications for a more authoritarian society? It does leave a little bit of a hole around that. Well, we'll, we'll move on. Um, let's talk about In fact, the tumbleweed silence that followed gathered a lot of attention on social media, with many people writing in, including Ben Rogers from London. I cannot be the only listener who felt a chill go down their spine at this exchange. Making every allowance for the fact that Mr. Shen is a private investor, does not speak for the Chinese Communist Party, and cannot be expected on air to take risks with his future relationship with the Chinese establishment, the fact that he couldn't speak speaks volumes about where China is going. Hi, my name is Corey Windorf from Florida in the USA. I can understand the guest's position on the topic, and I'm really quite glad The Economist pushed the issue and published their results. Hi, my name is Vishank Patel from Northwood in Middlesex. I felt compelled to write in to congratulate you for the consummate professionalism that you showed. It was a quite extraordinary interview, but keep up the good work. Thank you, Vishank, Corey and Ben, for sharing your thoughts with us. To our other listeners, if you have anything to add about this or anything else you've heard in the podcast, you can tweet us at Economist Radio or email radio at economist.com. The final clip we have is from an interview with a giant of American politics, John McCain. He is often irascible and unpredictable. And recently, McCain hit the headlines for casting the crucial vote to derail his own party's plan to repeal Barack Obama's health care reforms shortly after he had himself been treated for brain cancer. But he was in strong form when he spoke to Anne McElvoy in his Washington office in April about the current freewheeling in foreign policy. Well, one thing that's at stake, which is of uh, immense value to me, is a moral high ground for all of the last century, which was called the American century. We stood up for people who were struggling for freedom and democracy and condemned and took what action we could when their atrocities took place. My God, did, uh, anyone who has seen the pictures that were smuggled out by Caesar is appalled. And so we've lost credibility, and we lost an enormous amount of that under Barack Obama, who decided that leading from behind was the role for America. So what's at stake, What is what has happened here is we've lost our moral authority, the shining city on the hill. And we have become transactional, and we have failed to live up to our ideals and our goals for all human beings. Our declaration that all men, all, are created equal. It didn't just say Americans. 
endowed with certain inalienable rights. So we've lost that moral high ground. So I want to make one thing clear. I'm not advocating sending the Marines to every brush fire. I am saying that we need to, to stake out a ground and a position of, of the United States in the world that was best articulated by Ronald Reagan, who was once described by Margaret Thatcher that he won the Cold War without firing a shot. Not so easy in subsequent conflicts, however. And one of the things I wanted to put to you was that you'd been relatively supportive of Rex Tillerson. At least you said, you know, this man seems sensible. I'm paraphrasing here. And then actually now we seem to be hearing a slightly different tone. You've heard Rex Tillerson, one of the people suggesting that perhaps we just let Syria be. Has your view changed, Mr. Tillerson? I was skeptical about uh, Mr. Tillerson because of his background and his relationship with Vladimir Putin. I voted for him after two meetings uh, with him. But to somehow make a statement that the Syrian people will determine their own future themselves, I mean, that, that's one of the most unusual depictions of the facts on the ground that I've ever heard of. What about the Iranian Revolutionary Guard? What about the Russians? What about uh, Hezbollah? Uh, what else? If it were not for these outside influences, Bashar Assad would be uh, residing in some other place, I hope, in hell. But he's been propped up by all these outside influences, and one of the great errors in American history was when the President of the United States, leader of the free world, says, uh, if they cross a red line, we will act, and then doesn't. That's sent a message that's reverberated around the globe. Some people think this retreat from global affairs is actually what's called for, partly because of Iraq, but just a general feeling that the world is complex, it's difficult, abroad is just too much of a difficult place, America gets it wrong a lot. What is wrong fundamentally with saying didn't handle Iraq correctly. We got ourselves into some tangles preaching to Moscow. Putin doesn't listen anyway. Why not be transactional? Well, transactional is one thing. There's always room for negotiations. Again, Ronald Reagan certainly negotiated. But there's also an absence of leadership on the world stage. Nature abhors a vacuum. Barack Obama created vacuums. Look at the world in January of 2009, and look at the world today. You will find a world in chaos, 6 million refugees, 400,000 killed, Chinese asserting sovereignty over international waters, uh, Russia now established in the Middle East like they haven't been since 1973. The list goes on and on and on. And when America doesn't lead, then bad things happen. Our thanks to John McCain. That's all for this week. If you want to listen to any of these interviews in full, you can find them online. Go to radio.economist.com or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, you can listen to more episodes of this show, The Economist Asks, by finding it in the feed. And remember to rate us. It's important that you do because it really helps a lot. If you like our journalism, please, please take out a subscription. Go to subscription.economist.com. And in London, I'm out of here. Just kidding. This is The Economist. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. 
Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at osiamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. 